This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Awanate Kobina. He is the CEO of Bedrock Manufacturing and the interim CEO of Shinola Detroit. Awanate, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. How are you? I'm, I'm good. We've, um, we've put off this conversation a couple of times because you're a very busy man. But <laughs> what an exciting job running not just Shinola, but you know the, the, the Bedrock Manufacturing Company that seems to be doing so much. Um, you have to just sort of rattle off a list to begin with. What are some of the major business units that you are the CEO of? Because it's diverse, right? It, it, it is diverse. And obviously, we're, we're here talking today because of Shinola. Uh, Shinola is a 10-year-old brand based in Detroit, Michigan, that we believe uh, has, has a bright future. Uh, additionally, um, Bedrock also contains Filson, which is a, I hesitate to call it a, a hunt fish brand because it's, it's more than that. It's more outdoor apparel uh, and bags. But Filson is based in Seattle and 100, it's a 125-year-old brand, actually 126 this year, having been founded in 1897. So we, I'm lucky in that we have two, uh, two historic um, heritage brands in the Bedrock portfolio, and, and I get to steward them for, for this period of time. And what is the tying thing that holds all these together? I mean, you make buildings, you make watches, you make bags. Um, talk a little bit about how all this goes together, because I think if you're, if you're coming from the outside, you know, it's hard to understand the culture. And it is the case that oftentimes watch companies would be part of complicated organizational groups that make a lot of other diverse things. Think of Casio or Seiko in Japan that definitely make other things as well with Seiko Epson and printers. But talk a little bit about, at least from a cultural or, or value perspective, what ties everything together um, at Bedrock and Shinola? Yeah, it's, it starts with quality. Quality, craftsmanship, world-class hospitality and customer service. Those are all, those are all paramount to what we were trying to do. In addition, Making things in the United States is, and making things as much as we can in the United States is, is another key element. When you think about Filson and having been around since 1897 and the, uh, the, uh, the, the length of time that it's been around and the fanaticism almost that its customers have for it, you, you see that brands don't have to be trendy or don't have to follow fashion in order to be really loved by their customers. And, and that love and that affinity is what we also see at Shinola with, with their watches and the, some of the other categories that you mentioned, the bags. Now, now, jewelry is a growing category for Shinola as well. So it really is that quality, that craftsmanship, the customer service that you experience in stores and online, and the affinity to the brand that we are trying to bring together. There's also the element of, of, of um, being tied to somewhere, right? When, when you think of Filson, you think, yes, of Seattle, but you also think of Alaska, right? There was a, it was a, a, a mining, uh, used by miners and, and outdoorsmen originally. You think of Shinola, you think of Detroit. And so we want to evoke a feeling of, of community and home and, and, uh, and being of somewhere, and that's another tie between those two brands and, and really other brands that we, we would bring into the Bedrock portfolio in the future. 
I love hearing about that because, you know, that that answer is so different from an American company versus maybe a um, an Asian company or European company. In, you know, in the watch world, as you basically said, the, the product is a function of certain values and things like that. And that's one of the reasons why watches are so different because they're all designed to do the same thing, tell the time and, you know, be worn on your wrist and hopefully last a while. But the way that companies go about it is so different. And part of that has to do with some of the core foundations. And American companies, especially today, are so focused on what you're talking about, which is the impression that consumers have when they engage with that brand somehow. Go to their stores, buy their stuff, look at their media, whatever. And that's uh, maybe not uniquely American, but you definitely don't have that from a traditional manufacturing company, which is like, we want to make products at the highest profit margin and the lowest price that the market really wants. Like, that's technically what a manufacturing company does. But today, it's so much more different than that. And the types of things that you're talking about um, are a lot more relevant. Are, are, you, are you aware a little bit that the competition, so to say, uh, comes about this in a very different way and that there are maybe, you know, there, there are strengths to your approach. Of course, there's strengths to their approach. But I'm just wondering, because the watch world is wide and you do so much, you know, how much, how much time are you able to even think about the watch world? We, we have to think about it a lot. Watches are almost, uh, almost 60% of our business at this point, da- down from, from uh, you know, from a much more than that at, at earlier on. But as we think about the, the, the watch world, and the other categories that Shinola is in, we have to think about the competition because there, there really is no company like Shinola, right? You, you rattled off uh, some, some, um, some segments earlier on, watches and bags, especially leather bags, jewelry. Those are three of our primary categories, but we're also in pet uh, hospitality with the Shinola Hotel and hopefully other hotels coming in the future. So we have to look at the competition in order to better understand where uh, where the those discrete industries are and where they are going. However, you also mentioned that we we think about it in a different way, and we and we do. That's that's sort of the reason for being. When you think about the the founding story of Shinola, um, anyone that was here at the beginning. Uh, will tell you that the primary purpose was to create a uh, hundred manufacturing jobs uh, and a hundred jobs in in Detroit, uh, which at the time was a hard hit part of America, and th- we were successful with that. Right, we we have almost five hundred employees today, um, but intrinsic in that that answer to why Shinola is you you have to provide people with a quality of life that will make them want to stay. And that necessarily means, yes, we're a business. We, we, you know, we have to make money. But do we have to, as you said, make the highest possible profit margin on every item in order to sustain our business? The, the answer is probably no, right? We want people in this business to be around for 100 years. And to do that, um, you have to think about people, whether it's the people inside of the company that are uh, designing the items or making them or selling them in retail stores, or whether it's the people in each community that are buying them and coming into stores looking for uh, a, a home and a place where they can have some fun events and make some memories and, and by extension, hopefully buy some memories. And and that's a lot of what you guys do. I want to go back to the beginning because you talked about it. The brand was founded by uh, Tom Kartsodis, um, an interesting person who also co-founded the Fossil Group. What was he trying to do? What were his main objectives 
Obviously, a big part of it was the sort of Detroit revival and things that were, you know, produced as much in America as possible. But try to describe in your words, what was Tom's goal with Shinola? Tom's goal with Shinola was just that, to to create 100 jobs in a hard-hit part of America. Um, As he uh, co-founded Fossil, as you mentioned, and grew Fossil to a, a large public company, once, when you get to that scale, you oftentimes lose the original reason for being and, and sometimes also lose connection with, with your customers. Um, I, I, I know the same. I, w- I worked in the White House for a few years, and the, the job in politics is to be connected to the people. But when you're, when you're enacting policies that affect tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, it's hard to talk to each one of them about their feelings. Right. And what do you how do you think about this policy and what do you think about it? And it's the same at a, at a large company. You sometimes get disconnected. And so when he left Fossil and was traveling around and, and trying to explore uh, philanthropy and business and how to combine the two um, was around the same time that there was a lot of stories about uh, the, the, the decline of manufacturing in the Midwest, uh, the, in, including in Detroit. Uh, the Detroit bankruptcy was still a year away uh, after he founded Shinola, but the, the city was was clearly not what it had been in the 70s and 80s and, and early 90s when the auto industry uh, was, was humming along. And so creating jobs uh, in a place like Detroit where people know how to work as hard as anywhere else, right? You, you don't build the auto industry, the global auto industry from a city like Detroit, unless you're, you're working hard. And when you think about the elements of building a car, a lot of it is, is technical and you're dealing with bigger pieces than a watch generally, but also you have to know how to design and build something that not only looks good, but something that functions. And that is that is a similarity between a watch and a car and, and why you would come to, to Detroit to create the, uh, the, what it was at the time, I think, the, the first American large-scale watch manufacturing operation in, in, in decades. This gets me thinking about the long, larger conversation about where watches are made and why they're made in those cities. And that's actually very interesting, that story. And I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to contrast it or compare it a little bit with some of the stories of the you know, traditional uh, Swiss watchmakers and the historic brands, because I've always been curious about where do you start a watch manufacturer? I've noticed that the places where watches are made seem to be clustered together in sometimes very remote parts of uh, otherwise popular places. Um, in Switzerland, for example, it's sort of like it's not in big cities for the most part. It's kind of, especially the movement making, it's kind of out in the corner, peaceful areas. And I spent a lot of time speaking with historians there about why this even emerged in Switzerland. It was kind of a similar situation where there was relatively, I don't want to say poor, but um, not well-funded areas that people otherwise had a lot of manual labor skills. In Switzerland, a lot of it was also time. These were farmers that in the winter didn't have a lot to do, and they could sit in a barn and spend you know hours every single day making little parts, and then they would walk them down the mountain to Geneva where they would be put together into watches and, and sold. And the discussion about what needs to be a part of the population, you mentioned you know, being able to build things because of the, 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 the heritage of Detroit. The idea that you could take a city like Detroit and start building watches there is actually kind of remarkable, I think, because you can't just do that in any U.S. city or any city around the world. 
There's a particular blend of things that happen need to happen. And actually, because this sort of like large area of space in downtown Detroit, which ha- is, is just now really starting to be redeveloped, is actually kind of quiet. You have this combination of like the right kind of worker, the right kind of facilities, the right types of opportunities because of the it's, 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 it's affordable and the city wants people to have these businesses there. You know, sometimes people don't realize that that it required a lot of things to be in quite the right place. And of course, you picked up on some of these things, right? Definitely. You, you mentioned it. You, you need and you need, you need a few things to to make the, the situation where you can found a company like Shinola in, in a city like Detroit. So one of them that we've touched on already is the manufacturing, right? You need to have a manufacturing capability, a workforce that is trained to work with their hands, uh, a workforce that's hardworking. Um, and Detroit obviously has that, that history and that legacy, right? It was the birthplace of, of union labor in a lot of ways uh, and, and that manufacturing capability. You need to have space and facilities, uh, which Detroit obviously had as well, given the, the size and breadth of the auto manufacturing facilities in, in the downtown area. And it, you also need to have design. And the design element of this is key. And Detroit has, in, in my opinion, an, an underappreciated background with regard to art and design. But when you think of uh, the work that Mies van der Rohe did here, I know he did a lot in Chicago as well, but he did some projects in Detroit. Uh, you think of Albert Kahn and all of the, the, the remarkable architecture and buildings that, that he has in Detroit. And the, the list goes on and on. Channel is actually in the college for creative studies building. So we are surrounded by the art and design and the youthful energy that comes with it. All three of those things need to be true in order for you to create uh, a, a company like Shinola that produces watches like we do. And you couldn't go to anywhere else or many other places in the United States and get those, those things uh, all at once. Sure, you could probably go to New York and get the art and design, but um, they, they don't manufacture a lot in the city and, and it's obviously not affordable. Uh, the Bay Area would have affordability issues as well, although they have the engineering talent um, and, and, and some of the art, artistic and design talent as well. So I, I think that it would be, be hard to pull this off even now in, in many other places in, in the United States. Thank you for mentioning all that because I don't think people appreciate how delicate of a situation you need to have a watch manufacturer, especially one where you can turn any sort of profit. If you look at the watch market, you'll notice that the retail price for watches, I mean, it just varies wildly across the board. And a big reason for that is that the cost of making watches varies wildly. The trick in this industry, because it's so competitive, really is to make the highest quality product at a price that the market can bear. Uh, if you make something amazing at three times what you know the competitor is charging, you're not going to get a lot of business for good reason. And so what Awanante is talking about is so crucial because the bottom line absolutely depends on these factors aligning. Is it like that with some of the other things, the leather and everything, or is watch the watchmaking side the ultimate challenge in the sort of like industrial complex? It, it is the most challenging, but rightly or wrongly, the products that we've chosen or the product categories that we've chosen to be in all have their own challenges in, in, in their different ways. So you, 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 you've expertly 
uh, describe the situation with watches. Um, when you think about some of the other product categories that Chanel is in, jewelry, for example, we have to deal with not only the, the fine jewelers, but also the mall jewelers, right? So we're, we're also getting squeezed in, in that category between um, uh, companies that can go as low as possible because they have such volume and, and companies that are known for thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, valued product. Um, same in audio. We, we did turntables in the past and, and uh, hopefully fans of Shinola will be happy to hear that turntables will, will be back at some point in the near future. Those that Those industry, were really crazy popular for some reason. They, they were. <laughs> we, we, I, I, we still get about a call a week uh, from someone that saying they, they we're out of turntables and when are they coming back, which is remarkable given the fact that it's been uh, at least a couple of years since we've, we've had them regularly. Um, but the audio industry and headphones and, and Bluetooth speakers, which we have, and, and turntables in particular, it, it's the same or similar to watches in that it's a, it's a defined ecosystem with very limited parts manufacturers and very li a limited number of American companies doing it. And the, the quality has to be great, but you, you also can't outprice the competition or people aren't going to buy it because everyone is doing pretty good stuff, right? Now, we can say our stuff is, is marginally better or 10 or 25% better, but they're, they're all pretty good, right? And so when you're thinking about the, the, the competition and not as able to differentiate, differentiate yourself based on the quality of the product, the, the story behind the product, knowing the values of the company, um, knowing where it's made like Detroit really, really starts to matter. Now, as a marketing communication person, I want to ask your opinion. What is the best way to communicate to a consumer? Yes, our thing might cost a little bit more than the lowest priced one on the market, but ours is better. And I know it seems simple, but it's it's a complicated in a marketing communication ask. Like, what is the best way to say just that, especially over and over again? It's it's hard, right? It's hard because no one. The if you said the opposite, uh, buy our stuff because it's cheaper. No one's going to do that, <laughs> right? Um, people want to know that they are, especially in these times, they want to be personally invested in the brand. They want to know that that the, the the products are of the highest category. They want to know the people that are making it, or think that they know that the people that are making it, and they want to know that it stands for something. And that is that is hard to do when when everyone is trying to do the same thing. So what we've tried to do is uh, tell our story as loudly as possible. I, I think what you'll hear from us and, and most people have heard or most Shinola customers at least have heard some version of, of our Detroit origin story. Um, not many other watchmakers have as unique an origin story as Shinola has, right? So that's something that we hope we can always continue uh, to tell that will help differentiate us. Additionally, as we, we release things like the Canfield Speedway watch, um, the Mackinac, which is is a uh, is a uh, an area in, in Michigan um, the mechanic which is the the windup we, we're trying to be uh, a little more unique in not just the story but also the styles right so you can go into a Shinola store and, and say oh, uh, tell me about this watch 
and they'll say, oh, this is a sailing watch. It's, you know, yes, it costs X, Y, and Z, but here's the story behind it. And um, we've released a lot of watches over time. Our, our Great American series is another example that's less about the, the functionality about, of the watch and more of the story behind them. And we hope to always continue to be able to do that. A lot of that storytelling happens at the Shinola stores, which are great because not only do you have your own retail stores, but they have a nice design, uh, they're welcoming. And, you know, I think for people that don't know, Shinola has a, a whole lot of different things they sell. Like the variety of stuff is kind of amazing. Like I remember back in the day when I would go to uh, shopping malls as a teenager, I'd go to like a sharper image store and you'd go in, there'd just be like so much stuff. I'm reminded about that in sort of, again, a more Americana high-end way at Shinola because the watches are sort of front and center, but then you have these bags, there's the bicycle, then there's just this whole array of just fun stuff, gifts or things to use for fun. I it, I don't even know how to describe all the variety of, of interesting things, but you use the stores for this. Um, do you, you know, is that a strategy that continues to be successful? Are there more stores coming to get more volume? Is it going to be something where, you know, you buy Shinola and other stores? I, th- I feel like I know some of the answers, but since I think it's such an important part of the business model, I'd love for you to discuss the importance of the stores and how that ties into the overall product distribution strategy. Yes. So stores are, are uniquely important to us and there will be more stores coming. Um, but we do want to make sure that whether you shop in stores, we, we, we have 22 of them and we, we hope to grow that, uh, whether you shop e-commerce or whether you shop through a third party like a, um, like a, a Neiman Marcus or a independent jeweler, that you are that you get the same level of service as you would at our stores. Um, we really value the interaction with the customers, not being salesy, making sure that our customers understand the stories behind our watches, the stories behind Shinola. And there's only so much of that you can do via e-commerce. We, we want our e-commerce to be top-notch and we want our customers that shop us via e-commerce or through one of those third parties to feel the same way and have the same affinity for the brand that we do if you shop in store. But the reality is you're, you're not interacting with one of our retail uh, sales people, our retail associates. Uh, you're not in our environment and you're not looking at all of our products. It, it's a, it becomes a little harder. So we're going to spend time in 2023 and 2024, making sure that every store looks the way that we need to. So they're getting some store refreshes where needed, potentially rolling out a new concept at some point. Uh, now that our original concept, which has been well-loved and well-received, is, is 10 years old. And also branching into new markets where we've seen uh, a large volume of Shinola loyalists and other customers uh, come from. Uh, around the country and, and hopefully eventually also internationally. We, we, the other thing that we can do in our stores that are harder to do um, in wholesale channels and impossible to do in e-commerce is, is really bring together the Shinola community in lo- unique ways. In some of our high street stores and occasionally in the mall stores, we'll have uh, events where we support a local charity or have local um, local celebrities or dignitaries come and, and host 
uh, host their companies or their friends at the at the store uh, to really just bring together that that Shinola community um, in, in a place that everyone enjoys. You probably spend an awful lot of time in the stores as any CEO d- does to learn and to figure things out. What are you looking to learn from consumers? I, I find it interesting to see how consumers interact with brands that I'm working with, how, you know, what they look at, what they pick up, the questions they ask. What are some of the things that you look at when you're visiting the stores and you're just trying to get a little of sort of like hands-on you know, market information? So it's, it's, I'm probably unique in the fact that I didn't come from a consumer products company or retail company or a fashion company or a manufacturing business in the past. Uh, my, my, my personal and professional history is in sports and, and uh, real estate and, um, and politics, frankly. And so I, I try to learn not just from our customers, but also from our, our sales associates who know the product so well. So when I go to a store, I'm looking at where people's eyes naturally navig- uh, naturally uh, go and navigate. Um, how do they walk around the store and in what direction? Um, what do they touch and feel? How, how do they respond to the materiality? Uh, looking at the, the lighting and, and what I know from our side, from the company side, we're trying to highlight. Does, does that actually get highlighted? Uh, when the customer is looking at it. So I'm really trying to pay attention to some of the subtle cues that customers and, and potential uh, customers are looking at when they're walking around our store. And then then I engage, right? Because sometimes people will buy something, sometimes they won't. Um, our, our store associates also have a lot of expertise given that they are the front lines of everything that we're doing from a sales perspective. So just asking, hey, you, you picked up this bag. What, you know, what, what drew you to it? And so I, that helps validate or invalidate sometimes uh, some of the assumptions that I had during more casual observation and then uh, buttressing that with conversations with our store associates who, who see thousands of people every day. I mean, you really learn things that you would never imagine being on the ground like that, right? Like, I never, I can never predict how a market will react to something because I can think something's beautiful or nice, but then the thing that actually sells a lot is something that like I don't actually like, and I, and I'll understand intellectually why that not interesting to me thing does well. But isn't it just amazing some of the things that you just never would have predicted just by being right there on the ground? It is, it is everything from from traffic patterns to to product choices to uh, how do you how you organize the assortment in the stores. Everything to the times of day that get busy. I, I worked a store uh, a couple times in December during the holiday period. And, you know, I, I normally shop if, if I'm going to the mall or a store the weekend. You know, maybe I'll do it in the morning um, b- before I go get lunch or in the mid-afternoon. And, and those were the times when the store was slow, which showed me that, I, you know, I, I'm probably not the average customer. Uh, but it, the, the things that you can learn being in a store, watching customers, talking to potential customers, going to other competitors' stores and, and walking around the mall or, or the street to see what the others are doing, how displays look. It, it is invaluable, invaluable research for any, any person that's interested in our industry. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the international side, then I'm going to talk more about you. Um, and this, for me, is a very interesting thing that Shinola 
for all intents and purposes, is not internationally distributed. It is an American brand sold in America to American audience, and it's it's done that well. There's obviously a lot of potential in international. I think there you may have a little bit of stuff, maybe in Japan. I know that Japan is a, is, is a market that just likes American-made stuff, so a lot of companies will go there first. Um, but to you, how... How big is this world potential and how would you go about it? Because, you know, truly invading the world, so to say, takes decades, right? It's not like a one move. It's it's, right. it's a campaign that you do, almost like a military campaign, slow, and you have to win here before you start over here, right? Yeah. And I think as we look at that, you mentioned Japan, um, you mentioned or you didn't mention uh, Western Europe. I, I think that there are places that are more natural fits for companies coming from America than others. The, the UK uh, would be great. Would UK be great, would be I great, think. for example, right? So I, I did some, some travels last summer for, frank, frankly, for Filson, um, who, who is distributed internationally, but also talking to those, those distributors about and others about Shinola. And I, I think that there's a place given, um, place in Japan, given the affinity for American products and their their affinity for watches, right? When, I, when I, there was a couple stores, which which I I won't name here, but when I went there, they were multi watch uh, multi watch retailers, and their their assortments and the quality of the brands that they were getting were tremendous. And again, to your last question, watching the customers come in, and they were all very knowledgeable, and they all knew. Uh, many of the brands in in this particular store and, and what they wanted. So I think Shinola could could do very well in in that country and and the UK as well for for obvious reasons given the the connection between uh, the UK and and the United States um, the the lack of a language barrier uh, their knowledge of American style and fashion and vice versa I think that's another place where Shinola would be very successful not not just in the watch category frankly but also uh, in some of the other categories as well. I'm sure you're right. Another question, what is your pressure to grow as a company? I know that sometimes a CEO is in a position where there are big growth targets and you you, you got to grow. Other times it's more about improving quality and making sure that core systems and processes work efficiently. Um, I, I, you know, that, that changes what you do and how you make decisions. What, what are some of the things that you're trying to actually achieve per, per your position at Shinola? Unfortunately, I, I was tasked with both of those things. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so we 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 need to grow. And I, I mentioned this at one of the the company town halls about a year ago. I said, picture picture a building, a large building, a skyscraper. We are going to both tighten up our processes, so essentially strengthen the foundation with cement, and build the building at the same time. <laughs> so. Uh, I'm sure that most of the team didn't love hearing that, but to answer your question, we're, we're doing both. The, the Shinola brand is 10 years old. And one of the things that I, I love about the brand and the people here, and, and this has been since the founding, has been they're scrappy and they're hungry and they, they love uh, hearing the naysayers and overcoming those. And so that type of environment is very entrepreneurial and, and really leads to, uh, it can lead to success. However, as you continue to grow and you need repeatable processes and accountability and the CEO or the founder can't talk to every employee every day because there's hundreds of them, you, you need mechanisms for keeping, uh, for keeping the, the business 
not just afloat, but keeping the business growing. So that's one of the reasons that the, the management team now uh, has been tasked with strengthening those processes, making sure that they're repeatable and really doing everything that, that we need to do to, to have a strong company, not just for 2023 or 2024, but like I said earlier, for the next 100 years. Additionally, we have to grow. We're a private company and we, you know, we, we have investors and a founder and the, the, uh, the, the goal, uh, I hesitate to say the goal is worldwide domination, but we want people to, to know the brand and love the brand and for the brand to be around for a long time. And, and to do that, we need to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible, which means that we, we have to keep increasing the quality and we need to do more, more marketing and we need to find ways that are not transactional to interact with people in the world to be able to grow efficiently and effectively, not in a, in a, um, in a, in a, in a manner that's that where we're taking advantage of people. But like we said in, to the answer, I think one of your first questions was, how, you know, how do you keep growing and keep quality going? Well, we need to, we need to do that by making sure that people understand the brand and we're not charging the highest possible price, but getting people to, to really know and touch and feel what we're trying to do. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayou, the founder of Bayou Watches. My family has been living in the heart of the Swiss Watch Valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bayou is one of the best kept secrets here in Switzerland, adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we release a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for under 5,000 US dollars, the biggest regional newspaper came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families and our prices start at 500 US dollar. I invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking. Visit BA111OD.com. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vial in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vial harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. You know, I, I learned something from years of observing this that might be helpful for this conversation in regard to this sort of messaging thing. And it was basically that when you message them, you shouldn't always ask for money. And there are some companies, every single time they hit you with an ad or a piece of marketing, that's essentially what they're doing. They're saying, buy something, pull out your wallet, spend money. Consumers don't like this. Um, I don't know exactly the mixture, but I think it should be sort of maybe along the 80-20 rule, where 80% of the time you message them, it should be, here's something cool we're doing. Here's something new we made. Here's how we make stuff. Here's other people that like our stuff. And then 20% of the time is, we have a sale or, uh, you know, buy this thing for a holiday or an, an occasion. But like most of the messaging should be more informational or friendly, like, hey, I just wanted to share this cool thing with you. And it's almost sim similar to a friendship or a relationship with a human being. 
every if every time they call you, they want something, you know, you're not going to be that excited about those calls. But if most of the time, they're like, hey, Awanate, I just want to share something cool with you that I saw. You're like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pay attention to that. Um, and I know that sounds maybe very simple, but I felt that that was the, e- the best way of thinking about the relationship with the consumer. What do you think? I agree. I agree. And, and we haven't always gotten it right, if I'm being honest. The, the first five, six years of, of Shinola, maybe even seven years of Shinola's journey uh, was, was almost all, all brand-focused all storytelling. And at some point, pre, uh, just pre-COVID, um, we, we went more digital and more performance-based and, you know, um, Google ads and whatnot. And we, we lost some of what I think people liked, not just about Shinola, but as you said, like generally was just informative and, and, and being less transactional. And it's not about product. And we're not always trying to sell you something. And we're, we're, we're back there now. We, we understand where our, our place is and why people love us. And so we are proactively this year trying to tell more stories about why we're in Detroit and uh, about our partnership with the College of Creative Studies, where we have our building and some, about some of our employees, 15 of whom have been here for, for 10 years, for the full 10 years. Um, there are just so many of the stories that, you know, where we get our our, the leather for our bags in the United States. Like there, there's so many of those stories that I think people would be interested to hear that frankly aren't necessarily about us. They're about our partners and things that we've seen that are cool and, and, and some of the materials that we use. And we really think that'll uh, help to continue to have people listen to us. Because if you're, if, as you said, if you're hitting them over the head about product all the time, it's not, it's not a recipe for long-term success. I'm going to change tack again here to hiring. Um, A lot of people, especially in the United States, ask me, and they have for a long time, hey, I'm interested in the watch industry. I might want to get into it. And it's a hard hard question to answer because there's no direct way. There's not like big brands that hire. But my question for you is in terms of a profile of a person's personality or some of the traits you look for, what are those things in someone for Shinola, especially if, if watches is going to be part of the role? Talk about some of the things you look for so that people out there can understand what it might be like to work in the watch industry in America. So I think the first thing is if you're, if you're in an industry that we're, we're not tech in Silicon Valley, right? We're, we're watches in Detroit. And so there is only a handful full of, of watchmakers in the United States. So you're going into an industry that maybe your, your friends think are cool, but are, are, is not generally seen as the, an aspirational industry. So you, you need to be someone that loves challenges and that is in it for, is in this business for, um, for their own reasons. Um, secondly, I think you want to be aspirational worker channel. You, you, you have to believe that this small engine that started 10 years ago is really doing things the right way and is going to grow to be, is going to grow to be something big through teamwork. So we try to hire people that are are team driven. Um, There's not a lot of prima donnas walking around here. If any, Uh, we try to hire people that are humble people that, you know, can say, Hey, I made this mistake or are are willing to help their, their teammate get their job done, willing to grow uh, people that work for them or, or pitch in at any point. Um, so these are the kinds of people that we try to hire and, and, 
you know, from my background, I, I mentioned that I'm not of this industry. The last thing I look for is someone with, with a, a worldview, right? And when I say that, it's not political at all. It's someone that uh, understands, um, I, I call them athletes, right? Someone that can understand multiple different disciplines and is functional in, in, in a couple of them. But understanding if you're a marketer and you understand the manufacturing process, so if you're an operations person and can understand product development, you become that much more powerful because you're not just looking at issues that arise through your silo, but you're looking at the totality of the process that we need to go through from ideation to design to product development to go to market to sale. And the more of that you can understand, the more you can bring to your individual job. That's very interesting, and thank you for sharing that. I think one thing that I hear hear from you that I've heard from others is that the right individual comes from a variety of backgrounds. They didn't just have one job for 20 years and they're perfect. Maybe if you're you know, a watchmaker, but pretty much everyone else at the company has to have had different types of jobs, ideally different companies, because a watch manufacturing job is just that. It's a series of different disciplines. No one is going to get you there perfectly. And being someone from some type of diverse background, ideally success in those backgrounds, but a diverse background makes you uniquely qualified um, for the watch industry. There's probably other industries like that, but um, it, it, it really seems to be important in, uh, you know, I, I guess you call it creative manufacturing, right? Yeah. It's during one of our first leadership meetings, someone asked me, like, why are you here? Like, what makes you think, you know, you can, you know what you're doing? And, and I, I said, I don't. I hadn't built a watch at that point. I, I hadn't uh, sold any watches or bags at that point. But the, the things that I feel comfortable doing um, and the things that I did in other industries as part of a team are things that are can make us successful here as a team. One of them is, is the team, right? Knowing that it's not about me or about Tom or about the person to our right. It's about building the right team of complementary parts. And you don't need all all all-stars. You, you've seen what happens in sports when you build a dream team in the NBA or the NFL, like the team ends up falling apart, right? You need people that can score. You need someone that can rebound, someone that can play defense, someone that can dribble the ball. And, and that's, that's, that's how you build the team, right? So they don't have to be um, great individually. They need to be great together. So that's, that's, that was part of my answer. The, the other part of the answer was um, whether it's sports where you're, selling the dream of a championship to fans and, and, and then having to buy tickets and sponsorships and suites, or whether it's politics where you're sharing a vision for the country or, or your state or your city and having them vote, you're, you're selling, right? And, and I've sold and the teams I've been on have sold pretty successfully. And as we think about what we can do here, uh, Tom often talks about uh, building our our West our version of the West Wing, right? I don't know if you've seen that show. Uh, sure. I, I, hap- I happen to live it <laughs> um, for for a few years. Everyone's, love Aaron Sorkin stuff. Love Aaron Sorkin stuff. Newsroom, etc. People being together for the right reasons, doing the right things, is an unmatched feeling in any industry. And if you can get the right people on the bus, they'll tell you the right place to go. I have another way you could have answered that I was thinking about, and that is. From manufacturing, sports, and politics, you actually represent three major consumer groups that are otherwise kind of hard to understand. Like what are like industrialists thinking and what's aspirational for them? 
athletes, particularly dif difficult to understand what really motivates them. And then same thing with politicians. But if you can have a company like Shinola that appeals to at least those three groups, imagine who else you'll also appeal to. I mean, for me, that's the best answer. And that, and that is the one I'll use in the next podcast that we do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? Like yeah. most of the time in the watch industry, maybe you're not aware of this, the CEO tends to be pretty good at the understanding of what needs to go into making a good watch. But they never know what to make next. Because they don't seem to have enough of a, of, a, of a finger on the pulse of the consumer community. The CEOs that are watch lovers onto themselves or understand certain types of demographic groups, like what, you know, what hipsters are into or what aspirationalists are into or what celebrities themselves and, and, and influencers they want to be doing. Uh, you know, some of the major, uh, you know, luxury brands, all they need to do is engage with famous people. And that's it. You know, they're just like, that's fine. So understanding the consumer groups and how to appeal to, to the people that are buying the product is so crucial when you have a company that's selling essentially an ornamental good. I mean, a watch is a beautiful thing, but it's an ornamental machine. Yeah. Like you don't really need the functionality. You wear it because of the ornamentalism. You, you, you continue to wear it and you, you justify it because of the functionality and because it's well-made and because it's, it's a good tool. But the ornamental value is what we cherish and that's a social construct. And you, ideally in your position, are helping to design that construction. Well, not only design it, but design the, the experience by which people feel that it's an ornament, right? One of the things that we've tried to do is build in experiences. And our store, we, we look at our stores as, as an experience. We want someone to have a great experience when we're there. Uh, same with the hotel. We, the, we have a, uh, a Shinola store uh, adjacent to actually inside of our, uh, the Shinola Hotel on Woodward Avenue in Detroit. And when you go into that store, you see more people that are uh, tourists that are guests staying at the hotel, then you see uh, Shinola loyalists or or other watch people, watch guys and gals like you see in other stores. And so part of the reason that we've discovered is when you give someone a good experience, whether it's at uh, a resort in Jamaica or Bahamas or, or on Woodward Avenue in Detroit, they want to memorialize that experience. As you said, it, it's, an, it's an ornament in a lot of ways. And they will memorialize that sometimes through through buying a Chanel watch or a Chanel bag to, to remember that time. It's also, I'm a proud to be an American. I'm proud to be a Detroiter, a Michiganer. I'm proud to be someone that likes manufactured things. Like in, a, in an ideal world, all you need to do is say, here's a value. Let me associate my product with a value. And anyone that likes this value will like my product if I do a good enough job of connecting the two. Yep. Yes, and that's, and that's our job, is to make sure everyone feels the connection, or as many people as possible. And that's an entirely other job than simply making an item, right? Because that's what I think people don't understand a lot when it comes to the world of, of luxury goods or watchmaking, is you have to manufacture a product, and then you have to manufacture a feeling, and then you actually need to marry those two things together, which could be like, you know, the in-store retail experience or the customer service or whatever it is. And that is the invisible side of the of the company. You 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 would go to the office, which I've been to, which is very cool, and I I I I love going there. But you can't see anything but the actual product. So you think that's that's all that goes on here. This marketing side is interesting because, in a sense, it's 
It's very abstract. Like it's a piece of the company which only exists on paper and in ideas. And sometimes we call it culture or whatever, but it's a real piece of the company which is difficult to put into tangible sense or even to communicate to new employees, right? That's right. That's right. And But but you, they know it when they see it or they know it when they feel it. And so one the, a big part of our job, as you said, that no one sees is how do you build that emotion and that affinity um, around a product that is not a necessity? It's a considered purchase. People wear it as an ornament. It happens to have some functionality. I'm, I'm repeating all of the things that you said about it. Um, but it's not something that anyone needs. And so because of that, we have to get make sure that they feel that they need it or feel that they want it. Uh, and th- that it requires building some connection to it, whether it's the location or, or the effort that was put into it um, or some other experience that they had around it. It, it, was a pat, it was passed down from, from their father or their mother or a gift for graduation. You have to, you have to highlight those, those instances in order to make sure that that, that feeling is, is, is derived and, and thus that, that, that product is, is cherished. They almost have to cherish the product before they buy it, right? Yeah. No, I mean, look, the idea isn't just that they buy something they need. The idea is that after they have it, they look at it. And they like it and it continues to deliver an emotion. If that product, every single time someone engages with it or even looks at it, delivers that feeling that you tried to manufacture into it or just accidentally happened and you're just a a beneficiary of that accidental emotional connection, that is success. If If they liked the packaging and they bought it and they took it home and they never think about it again, you may have gotten their money, yes, but you actually failed in to create that ongoing emotional relationship, which is what the quote-unquote brand needs, right? Agreed. Agreed. And we, we need that ongoing relationship if we're going to be the 100-year the brand that we want to be, right? It, it, can't be, it can't be about the purchase and to go home and put it in, in, the, in the closet or on the, on the desk. You got to wear it proudly and you got to feel positively about it, uh, not just for the day or week after, but for years to come. And that's why the quality is so important. I partially said it because the Shinola packaging is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's impressive because when we go to the trade shows, you know, you see a bunch of watches laid out. You never know what half the stuff looks like in the, in the retail setting, in the packaging. And then when I visited the stores and I saw like, not just for the watches, but for everything, like the, like the Shinola packaging is really well <laughs> done. Like that's, that's important. Um, I, I, you know, we, we have not too much time left. We'll obviously have to talk again, but I want to talk about you and your background. I mean, you mentioned some big things, manufacturing, sports, politics, the White House. Um, you know, what, what is your origin story and how did you end up running not just Shinola, but, but Bedrock in general? It's interesting. I, I would have never guessed that I would have ended here when I started, but I'm a first-generation American, uh, born in Philadelphia, moved around a lot, grew up in, in the Washington, D.C. area and in, and in D.C. proper, uh, college in Atlanta, did political science, of all things, um, and then ended up going to law school. And in, in law school, actually, before I went to law school, I was working at a law firm as a paralegal. Uh, in between undergraduate and uh, undergraduate school and law school. And uh, I walked into uh, one of the partner's offices and I knocked on the door and, and um, I opened the door. Her name was Amy and Amy was crying. And I said, Amy, what's wrong? And she pointed at the television 
And on the television was, of all things, Wheel of Fortune. And I said, hey, I mean, like, most people don't, don't cry at Wheel of Fortune. Like, is everything okay? And she, she said, um, I, I know the guy. I know, call him Chris. I said, okay, well, Chris is winning. Why are you crying? And she said, because he looks so happy and I'm so not. And I was like, let me give you a minute. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a second to, so we can get some work done. So I left. And in that moment, I decided that I was only going to do things that I loved, that I thought would make me happy, that were with people that I wanted to work with. And so that's the real connection for me between all the things that I've done. Yes, I've worked at the White House and in the Senate and helped run a presidential transition and a gubernatorial transition and worked at NFL headquarters and worked with the Detroit Pistons, helping to move them back to Detroit and and um, in uh, the arena and, and the practice facility that they're in now. But all of the jobs have to have some meaning, not just to me, but to the larger community. And they also need to be with people that I can consider not just coworkers, but also friends. And I, I, I've known Tom Cartsotis for a number of years uh, here. I, I, I knew of my boss at the Pistons and the, the people that I worked for and had the ability and the ability to work with, um, not just the Toms of the world, but the, the everyone in Shino and Filson has been top quality. And I really am lucky that they've given me the opportunity to be on their team. Now, you mentioned something interesting about, you know, legal work. I went to law school as well. And a lot of people don't know that um, there's a high rate of dissatisfaction among lawyers. Uh, it, even lawyer publications will talk about how it's not a particularly happy job. And uh, there's multiple reasons why it can be unhappy. One, because you don't make as much money as you need to to pay off your debt. Or two, that you make a lot of money doing something which you might not think is particularly ethical or helping the world or, you know, you're moving around a lot of paper and, and helping companies, you know, do, do their thing in ways you may not always agree with. Um, it's a great education other, uh, otherwise, uh, but this desire to do something interesting, communicative, uh, it's, it's funny because when, when we work in the, in the luxury industry, we see how hard it is, but to others who are in other industries, they're like, oh, wow, you're doing something. And maybe because it's like we're just making or we're helping making products that have meaning for people. And and it, it tends sometimes to be like fr people like laugh about the frivolity of, of luxury, but it's that meaning that we rely on. It's, you know, those things around our house, the things that we wear, we, we especially as we get older, we tend to get rid of things that don't give us positive feeling. And we just sort of are left with those things that we like the most. And, and, and that's, that's, that's a real part of our, our experience, right? Definitely. We, we are. And you have, to, you have to be left with things that you like the most. You have to be left with the positive memories. And you have to remember the, the positive feelings around um, those special days when you and your, your, your dad or your mom walked into a shy little store and they bought you a graduation gift. Uh, or you walked into a Pistons game and, and they were playing for the championship. Like those are the things that you can't trade. And you know, I, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that went to law firms or investment banks or consulting firms. Some of them loved it. Uh, many of them didn't. And I, I've been lucky that um, I've been able to not only have an impact in, in communities and people's lives, but also wake up every day and really enjoy what I'm doing and, and who I'm doing it with. So, in those worlds, you must have seen a lot of watch love, and that must have inspired you a little bit with some of the strategies that you have or want to implement 
Do you have any stories about people in politics, sports, you know, you know, big manufacturing and their relationships with their own watches or watches as as a consumer category that sort of gives you some direction or certain things you just you say, we got to do this as a company? Yeah, I've, I've really there's been an inordinate number of small business owners uh, and entrepreneurs, one of whom I, I met a couple of years ago at a friend's wedding. This this guy, uh, he's probably um, early 50s now. Um, he founded a, a large um, uh, nationwide hamburger chain uh, that, that most people, I think, would recognize. And I was at a wedding. We were talking. And he came up to me and said, are you, you're, are you the Shinola guy? And I'm like, I'm not the Shinola guy. <laughs> the Shinola guy is, is, if anyone, it's Tom Cartsotis. But I, I, you know, I'm familiar with Shinola and I, I work with Shinola uh, intimately. And he pulled up his sleeve and, and he was wearing a Shinola. And he said, he's like, I, um, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, I moved to Denver early on after college. I started a company. I've sold that company. I've started another company. And I can buy anything in the world. And I have 15 Shinolas. And it reminds me not just of Michigan and home, but of, uh, of starting something and starting anew and being great at it. And and he has a favorite color, so he he the, he buys anything that he sees of Shinola in, in X color, and he's like, I have, I have fifteen of these, and and like they they mean the world to me because of what they mean. And the moments like that, whether it's people in politics or CEOs of companies or this entrepreneur who's done very well, or actually the kid who came into the Shinola store in Somerset Mall in um, in Troy, Michigan, when I was working, who said, I come in here every other week, or maybe it was once a month, to look at the watch that I want to get when I graduate high school in a few in a few months. This was December. He's going to graduate in May. He's like, I just come in and look because I want to know that I want to get the perfect one. And I know it's going to be a Shinola. And I think I know what it is, but you know, new ones keep coming out. And like those moments about that type of inspiration or aspiration are are un, are unmatched by uh, many other things in, in in other industries like law firms or consulting firms. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny that when you have those conversations, you are so impressed upon the value that that uh, the people have with for the products. And I think what you're identifying is Shinola's ability to not just deliver an emotion, but to package culture. You know, you're talking about nostalgia. And that's one of the things I've learned that some of the, the European luxury firms have done so well. Uh, you know, there's different flavors, whether they're in England or France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy. But what they do is they package culture. In France, they've sort of began this industry. I think in Italy, they've also done a very good job of creating it, where they take elements of their history and they package it into a luxury product that is evocative of that time, of that theme, of the people that live them. And America has been too young of a country for a long time to do that. But now that there are faded glory days, real faded glory days of America, we we have this, you know, this collective nostalgia to work with and to package in an attractive luxury form so that you can deliver a sense and a feeling of a time that may may have not actually been as great as we think about it. But there is a positive association with that, and we have 
vestiges of that. I mean, the city of Detroit is a reminder. Detroit was the richest world, uh, sorry, the richest city in the world for a period of time. It has some very glamorous and cool things. You know, at, at, when, a, when a city is particularly rich, you have people, and you know this from manufacturing, they try to outdo one another with buildings. They try to make them look nicer or make them be bigger or make them be more expensive. And you know you sort of hit a pinnacle of a city's wealth when rich people who live there are trying to outdo one another in the buildings. It's actually similar with watches with you know very rich people or boats or whatever, but they're they're competing with one another and this sort of city benefits. And so now you can package so much American culture, whether it's Detroit, Michigan, or American general, and it provides you years and years, almost endless, infinite um, creative you know, inspiration to pull from, right? Yeah, that's right. That's a little bit of what we're trying to give to everyone. When, when people buy a Shinola, um, it's certainly not about the product. We're, we're trying to give them the, the type of feeling that you just mentioned about a bygone era or, and some pride in the place that they're living, the city that they're living in, uh, or America in general. What are some of the final things you want people to think about Shinola right now? Not only what you've accomplished over the last 10 years but some of the things you're doing next, you mentioned there's more stores coming, but until we have our next conversation, what do you want the consumer to be thinking about when it comes to Shinola products right now? Shinola products are, are meant to be, to be are quality, crafted well, and, and, and loved. And so there's a direct correlation between Detroit's reputation for craftsmanship and innovation and, and the our commitment to providing the, the best products that also have a, that also have a unique story. And so when, when they think about Shinola and they, they touch one of our products or they go into one of our stores, I, I want them to think less about the product and more about how there is a Shinola or a Detroit in every city, in every community, and think about the special memories that those products have and can have um, for them. We, we, we're, we're trying hard. Um, we, we're still the upstart in our minds. Uh, we, we don't want to get, um, get complacent because we know that there's so much, so many stories left to tell, and we hope to tell as many of them as we can in the near future. Fantastic. And finally, where do you recommend people go online or in the real world to learn about Shinola? Oh, to learn more about Shinola, they can obviously go to shinola.com. If you happen to be in the Midwest, I suggest that you stop by the Shinola Hotel in Detroit, Michigan, and the attached Shinola store. I think you get a great experience there or at our flagship location on Canfield Street in Detroit. Awanate, thank you. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Awanate Kobina, the CEO of Bedrock Manufacturing and the interim CEO of Shinola Detroit. Awanate, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to coming back. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>